Hey everyone, back again. Today I want to talk about Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer's notion of pseudo-individualization from the texts, the dialectic of enlightenment by the two of them, and then the culture industry by just Adorno. Now before jumping into that, hi I'm David. I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas in ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, uh, you can go and check out however many hundreds of videos I already have up. You can like, share, subscribe, and you'll see videos I release every single week. If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo if you're into that at all. If you want to help me out, do all those things I just mentioned. You can help me out via Patreon or PayPal if you want to help mon out monetarily, but no pressure to do that. You can find links for all that stuff in the description if you are interested in that. If you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find it on any kind of on YouTube I should say where there's a video if you're into that at all or if you found this on YouTube you're gonna be able to find it in podcast form pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts and uh, yeah so let's jump into this term pseudo individualization which happens to dovetail with other pseudo terms like pseudo praxis or pseudo activity pseudo enlightenment many other terms that uh, Adorno and Horkheimer use to describe efforts to resist, efforts to embrace a kind of uh, identity, a kind of individuality in a world that is largely going to determine these people in advance, limiting any kind of potential for individuality, limiting any kind of potential for actual resistance to logics of domination and oppression. Now our world is a highly mechanized world, that is, we are determined, even before we're born, how we'll probably act in the world, and we're gonna be determined what we can or cannot do. Now this is largely, largely true of any social arrangement at any period in time. We were, or any people, were going to be confined to the limitations of their given social arrangement, given culture, given nation. And that would, in part, determine who they can or cannot be. However, what we see today, when we look specifically at uh, advanced industrial nations, is a turn away from simply the adoption of various codes and conventions that might determine how one will live, and instead an embracement of a specific kind of logic of mechanization, rather than the embracement or the adoption of a kind of culture or of a kind of cultural identity. So what governs this mode of living, what they call, that is Adorno and Horkheimer call, the culture industry, is a social arrangement in which people, objects, and ideas aren't cultivated in terms of a community setting or in terms of uh, heritage and tradition, but are instead cultivated in the immediate here and now of incessant production of the same, production and reproduction of the same. Now, the reproduction of the same appears, that is, in what it produces, to not be the same. So, different cars are made every single year, and there are new models to cars that are made every single year, and this provides the veneer that things are changing and mutating and developing. But the underlying codes that govern, let's say in this example, the production of cars remains the same. So for example, what remains the same 
under the capitalist mode of production that we find ourselves in, and this could apply to other modes of production as well if you know you had the uh, really know how to excavate what was consistent about each mode of production, or at least the production of anything in any other given mode of production. What remains consistent in this mode of production is the extraction of surplus value from car workers or people who work upon the manufacturing of cars. Now what that means in the Marxist sense is that, to give a kind of brief uh, overview of Marx here, the idea that Marx gives us is that every single person within a capitalist economy, if we understand the capitalist economy as being comprised of workers and owners, people who employ workers, each person in that arrangement has a commodity that they are trying to sell. So capitalists or landowners are producing things, commodities that they could sell for profit. And workers are selling labor as a commodity that a capitalist can buy from them. Now the capitalist, what they try to do is they try and earn more off of what they sell than what it costs to go into it. So to make a shoe, they're going to want the shoe to sell for more than it costs to make. Now this means that the laborer who is selling their commodity of labor has to undersell their labor than what it's worth. So if I'm a laborer and I go and work in a factory to make a shoe, I am not being paid the same amount that I should be paid if that shoe is being sold for me. Because if it was, the capitalist would not be able to make money off of it. That is, the capitalist looks at the laborer as someone, as somebody that they could exploit. So labor is always going to be undersold in the capitalist economy. And this is what, as just one example, this is what binds two different car manufacturings or two, the manufacturing of two different cars. Even though they might be different, they might look different, they might run different, they might be four different people, what is consistent among them is the way that they were made. And this logic in this setting, this capitalist logic, underwrites everything. And so no matter how things are sold or produced, they are going to be driven by and guided by this similar capitalist logic. Now, Adorno and Horkheimer are not just focused on capitalism. They are focused upon the logic of the Enlightenment as well. So how the Enlightenment is sold to us in maybe the most facile way we might get from Kant. And Kant says that the Enlightenment marks a moment where people are no longer dependent upon certain forms of authority to tell them how to live. So the Enlightenment marks the period when people are no longer dependent upon a priest to tell them how to have a relationship with God. They're no longer dependent upon government to tell them how to organize their lives. They're no longer dependent upon, um, I think one of the other examples he gives is even about diet or like doctors telling people how to, how to eat, you know. People could essentially live life the way they wanted to. Now this logic, this individualization, this emerging individuality happened to coincide pretty well with the advent of capitalism that is reducing every single person to an atomized singular subject that was responsible for their own well-being. That is, they are going to be responsible for the 
being able to provide for themselves, being able to provide an ample amount for themselves to be able to provide for their families, and so on. This was not going to be the responsibility of anybody else. And in a lot of ways, and Adorno and Horkheimer are clear about this, this was a good thing. Of course, being able to break away from the bounds of superstition, of religion, of feudalism, in favor of democracy, in favor of uh, capitalist expansion and development, capitalist uh, ingenuity, advances in technology and science, which is something that, for those that might not know, Marx was very much uh, an advocate for. Marx very much believed that capitalism was a very necessary development in human relations to escape, to move people away from feudalism into uh, a certain kind of production that would eventually naturally form into communism as the next step. But as of this point, for Adorno and Horkheimer, these logics were important. That is this development, this burgeoning enlightenment. The problem though, is that within this particular organization of enlightenment comes as well very negative elements, many of which harken back many thousands of years ago. And they uh, spent a lot of time writing about myths and how many different myths and ideas that far predate the enlightenment kind of seep into the Enlightenment today. But in any case, uh, if you want more on that, I've done episodes on the culture industry and the dialectic of Enlightenment that lay that out in a lot more detail. But for now, it's important to note that the Enlightenment brought with it many bad things, even if it brought with it many good things. So sure, no longer people were going to be subordinate to the collective. They weren't gonna be forced to believe anything they didn't wanna believe. So we see freedom of speech emerge, speech emerge, we see freedom of thought, we see individuality, we see uh, all of these other, on the surface, quite good things. But this set the stage for, in many ways, more nefarious and sneaky forms of domination to insert themselves. So under this framework, people are not free of oppression, rather they get to choose how they're going to be oppressed. And what that means is, well, maybe to provide an example, people might say no to government, but they're going to say yes to corporate influence. They might say no to religion, but they're going to say yes to diet culture, where, you know, in the past, if you sinned, you had to repent. In the Catholic tradition, you'd have to go and uh, beg for forgiveness. And now, if you have too many calories, you have to go to the gym and work off those calories or go for a run and punish yourself in new modern ways that just extend, that just continue a tradition of subordination, of oppression to various codes and conventions that we believed ourselves to move beyond. So here we find ourselves actually maintaining many oppressive forms of control, all the while believing ourselves to have moved beyond it. So any effort we essentially exert or any effort that we move towards to demonstrate our own individual prominence on, on a global level, on an individual level, on a local level, only serves the end of maintaining the very system at hand, whereby buying a red car instead of a blue car doesn't actually demonstrate any kind of meaningful individual praxis or uh, practice or demonstration, it instead is only a confirmation 
of a system of mechanization, in this case, under capitalism, that is only going to be churning out the same thing over and over and over again in new clothing or in new forms. And it makes sense that in the face of this, people are going to be privy to these kinds of uh, oppressive movements, these kinds of oppressive structures that underwrite uh, our lives. And so we will seek to find ways to escape that. We might seek modes of liberation that might get us out of this. And advertising has certainly tried to uh, take advantage of these drives to escape the uh, kind of banality of everyday life, the repetitiveness of it all, of the mechanization of urban living. And so you'll get Jeep commercials that sell you the idea of the Jeep being a way to escape uh, the world, to be, to be able to escape the oppression of city or urban life in favor of freedom in the wilderness. When of course, the only reason that that image is sold to you, that dream is sold to you, is to get you to buy a Jeep, which only reproduces the same. It only works to maintain the system as it is. Now this general concern, or the way that Dorno and Horkheimer frame this issue, very much informs their skepticism about political action, where they believe that unless political action is conducted, after you know giving it a lot of thought, only after giving it a lot of thought, is it something worthy of conducting? Because otherwise, it might only serve the end of maintaining the system and its underlying structures, and to maintain them in even more nefarious ways because we would have fallen prey to the illusion that we've moved beyond them. So in the case of like, for example, a revolutionary imagination that sees uh, workers taking over the means of production to be very, to prevent a very simple example, unless these narratives are prepared to also address the ways that sexism, and racism, uh, heteropatriarchy, heteromonogamy, all of these other institutions will follow the revolution unless the revolutionary imagination is prepared to consider these other elements as well, what will risk happening is that these other oppressive institutions are going to be maintained following the revolution. And because we have really told ourselves that we have adopted this revolutionary stance, that the revolution has occurred, we risk allowing these oppressive institutions to become even more ingrained in us under the belief that we have the mission has been accomplished. So a proper, in my mind, if I dare provide any kind of real schematic here, a real roadmap, the proper way to go about doing this is to really locate as, as many tacit, that is uh, sneaky, uh, perhaps not so apparent structures and ideas that guide and shape who we are, identify those, and bring them into the fold of a revolutionary imagination. Otherwise, any kind of revolutionary action is only going to, the outcome will only be more of the same. And so it will only exert a kind of pseudo activity, a kind of pseudo praxis, one that we have tried to engage in to appease our pseudo individualism. And yeah, that's about it. Um, I hope that that was 
helpful. If you want more from Adorno and Horkheimer, you can go and check out the episodes I did on the dialectic of enlightenment and the culture industry and also some other ones, I believe. And yeah, if there's anything I got wrong or that I should have included, I'd love to hear about it. And yeah, catch you next time. Take care.